Right, I want to um, start by talking about survivor stories. I think we all really like survivor stories. We love the idea of the underdog coming through or all the drama that comes in of someone not going to make it and then somehow they do make it. Well, I was looking for a good one. Uh, there are loads of them out there. Um, but I found one that I didn't know before. It sounded insane. And I think it's actually real, which is crazy. It's about this guy, Jan Balsrud, I believe is how you pronounce his name, was born in, German, in, uh, in Norway and was asked to help the anti-Nazi resistance in World War II. Now, while he was on a boat in the frigid Norwegian waters, German soldiers shot his boat up, killing everyone on board except for him, and they actually shot his toe off as well. So um, they shot his toe off, he survived, he jumped into the water with only, uh, I think he only had one boot and one sock, so another, probably the, the foot that got shot up didn't have anything else on it. So he dove into the water, into those cold waters, um, and kind of found his way to shore. At, at this point, there's at least like 50 Nazis who are out there, kind of knowing there's a survivor, not really knowing where he's at. They're hunting him down, but he swims to this coast. Two girls on the beach uh, rescue him, uh, and then he had several Norwegian civilians secretly help him reach safety. They're moving him from house to house and um, finding out where the Nazis are going to be and, and then trying to get him away from there. This whole kind of massive operation. And then he also, uh, at one point, had to trek across like these mountains, these snow-capped mountains, all the while like Nazis were like, kind of on his trail. This is insane. Sounds like Quentin Tarantino. Uh, an, an avalanche at some point caused him to fall like 300 feet off of a mountain, and he ended up completely hallucinating and blind from the fall, and was kind of like going around. These villagers find him. They help him out a little bit. Uh, eventually, uh, he was found by locals after that fall. He was nursed back to health. He gained enough strength to continue towards the Swedish border that he was constantly trying to get to, but kept on getting held back because he found Nazi blockades, Nazi soldiers. At some, at, during this time, he found shelter in icy caves in Norway, uh, where he spent his time, I think it was like 28 or 29 days, in these caves by himself. He spent his time amputating his own toes as he got frostbit. So eventually, this guy was transported to Sweden, where he recovered. He weighed about 80 pounds when he finally made it to Sweden. He was six foot something. Um, and six months later, he learned how to rewalk again because he couldn't do it because of his lack of toes. Now, after all that, then he went to Scotland to train more resistance fighters. And then he also went back to Norway to fight again for his country. And he got to be a part of Norway, liberating his country in 1945. This guy, he's a dude. He's pretty awesome. I mean, and we love like, those kind of stories. I, mean, I would watch a film on that. Maybe there's one already made. I didn't find one yet, but somebody go out, please, and, and make one. I'll, I'll give you my money. Um, the general arc of survivor stories is one man, against all the odds, finds something within himself to continue to go, and he survives. Is, and we, we love that kind of hero thing. We like the idea that we are strong enough to overcome huge obstacles, we as in humans. We like the idea of relying on ourselves to see ourselves through. But Micah 5 kind of tells a little bit of a different story. In fact, it, it flips it. What we have, the context of Micah 5 is we have a people who, against all the odds, overcome everything, not by relying on themselves, but actually doing the opposite, relying on something that was not themselves. What we hear over and over and over is if they choose to rely on themselves, actually they're not going to make it. They won't survive. It's death for them. So it's precisely not relying on themselves that allows them to survive and eventually thrive in all kinds of circumstances. So if we're not relying on ourselves, then who are they supposed to rely on? Well, in this chapter, Micah paints a picture of a king who leads his people. 
Uh, and the people who have hope in this king, they get to experience justice and mercy as well as offer that justice and mercy to others. And hope in this kind of king leads to being able to have hope in all kinds of circumstances, no matter what might come. Now, I hope you don't find yourself in an icy Norwegian cave escaping Nazis, slowly amputating your toes. But we do all have enemies out there that pursue us. And not human kind of Nazi enemies, but all the things that hold us back from being humans fully alive. Micah teaches us that only by hoping in this king that he's talking about here can we really have hope in all his circumstances. So this is where we're going to go today. We have three points. Uh, First, we're going to talk about hope in this king. Then we're going to talk about power from the king. Then we're going to talk about being preserved by the king. So let's start first with (coughs) hope in the king. There we are. So these are the first six verses. And if you you have a Bible or your phone, we're just going to be kind of in some of these verses for a bit. So uh, again, here's the situation. You have Israel. You have these outside nations who are coming up against Israel. And for most of this book, Micah is talking to the people of Israel, kind of saying, you guys are going to be invaded by those guys. And Micah kind of talks as if he's not really involved. But from the beginning here, uh, he brings himself, he involves himself. That first verse says, marshal your troops now for a siege is laid against us. So Micah is now seeing himself as part of the people who are are kind of in danger of being uh, infiltrated and, and taken over by these strong outside nations. So nation is going to invade us. And this nation, they're not, they're not nice guys. I think I read this out uh, a few weeks ago, but here's an account of one of the kings, a king from Assyria, who was one of the Assyrian kings who was going to take over Israel. Here's one of the boastings that he had from previous battles. He says, I felled 3,000 of their fighting men with the sword. I carried off prisoners, possessions, oxen, and cattle from them. I burnt many captives from them. I captured many troops alive. From some, I cut off their arms and hands. From others, I cut off their noses, their ears, and extremities. I gouged out the eyes of many troops. I made one pile of living and one pile of heads. I hung their heads up on trees around the city. I burnt their adolescent boys and girls. I raised, destroyed, burnt, and consumed the city. These are the people who are coming against you. And the reason why they would do that is because if, if that happens to you, you're going to tell that story, other nations are going to hear about that. And so instead of fighting somebody like that, you'd be like, sorry, we don't want a pile of heads. Go ahead and take over our, you know, whatever taxes you want, we'll, we'll pay them. So, and what, what they're also doing here, though, is not only like taking them over, uh, it says that they will, streak, they will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod there in the first verse. So striking someone on the cheek with a rod is, is like shaming, is humiliating. It's like uh, if you're at a party and you have like cool like white gloves and you slowly take off each finger, you take the glove off and you slap them across the face. Like there's like a humiliation kind of like shaming involved in front of everybody. So these people were bad. They wanted to utterly destroy and humiliate their enemies so that future enemies would just surrender and give up. And these are the Assyrians that Micah mentions in verse 5 invading the land, marching through our fortresses. When the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses. So this is what's going to happen to the Israelites. What will the Israelites do? How are they going to get out of this situation? How are they going to wriggle out? Who who would we turn to in the most dire of of situations? As crazy as this is, that's coming on here, what Micah says is that these people are going to live securely, in verse 4, It says they're going to have peace in verse 5. It says they're going to be delivered or or rescued in verse 6. 
So in the face of these child-burning Assyrians, people here aren't freaking out. They have hope. They have peace. They have security. How, how, is that, how is that possible? Or are they just kind of losing their minds? Even when the Assyrians are presently invading, in verse 5, it says, he will be our peace, this king they're talking about, when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses. Not after, not before, but when that's going on. Now, I would love to live with that kind of security. I would love to live with that kind of peace when the most horrible stuff is going on. That'd be amazing. Who wouldn't want a life like that? Who wouldn't want a life to be able to experience peace and hope and all kinds of things and all kinds of circumstances? Well, let's see how they live this way. I think the key to it is what Micah brings up in verse two. He says, it's all about the king. In verse two, he says, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you're small among the clans of Judah, you're a small kind of insignificant town, out of you will come for me one who will be a ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. So we're just gonna look at, at some, of those, uh, some of those lines. But you, Bethlehem, though you're small, so the small town of Bethlehem will come a king. Now, Bethlehem is a really small, inconsequential kind of backwater town. Something big is coming from there. Israel's future greatness does not depend on a great human king and, and on human power, but on God to bring greatness from nothing. And out of Bethlehem, it says, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel. So the looking to the past, uh, if, if, and every Israelite here would understand, okay, we did have a, a big gigantic, powerful ruler who came from Bethlehem in the past, and that was King David. Was for, the, for the Israelite, that's like the epitome of what a king ought to be. It would be like whatever um, in America, like, like an Abraham Lincoln or a JFK or you know, some kind of like uh, strong, unifying king, like King Alfred here. I mean, enough time has passed. Basically, you need enough time to pass to you know, make the previous kings look really good because generally kings are not good. But King Alfred was the one who united the disparate parts of, of England to actually make an England itself. It's this kind of king that, uh, that, they're, that they're talking about. So his origins are from old, from ancient times. So he's, he's looking back to David, but he isn't looking to the past for hope because he said a king will come. It was a king from the past who is going to come sometime in the future. So an ancient king will come in the future and he will give us now in the present security, peace, and rescue. Now until this king comes, there's not gonna be a rescue because in verse three it says Israel's gonna be abandoned until they bear this son, until the time comes when this king comes. In verse three, Israel will be abandoned until this king comes through. But when he does come, all his brothers are gonna join in. There'll be this unification, there'll be this uniting, his family be connected and unified. And this king, in verse four, will stand and shepherd his flock, which means he'll actually care for his people, unlike the people of this time, unlike the people of our time, where most of the time our leaders, we know and understand and basically make it a given that they're not gonna really care for us. But this king will, and this new family that, that he's creating for himself isn't done in human strength, it's done in the strength of the Lord. And when a king who depends on the strength of the Lord rules over us, the benefit we get as being those people is security. We get security because we actually trust that the king has things out for us instead of out for himself. And this security isn't just kind of something that happened in a small time, a small place a long time ago. It's not localized. It reaches to the ends of the earth, which is what the end of verse four says. We will live securely for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. So our security is actually linked 
with the global greatness of God. Our security is connected to God's mission. Normally we think of being on God's mission leads to insecurity <laughs> because we think, how can we ever possibly you know, follow through on things like that? But that's if we're relying on our own strength. If we're relying on God's strength as the king is teaching us, the opposite's true. The closer we're connected to God's mission, the more we can experience his security. The, the more that we have the presence of this king ruling and reigning in our lives, the more we can expect security to come through in all our circumstances. And this king can be peace for those who are even being presently invaded by enemies. So even in that moment, when those times come, if we're under the rule of this king, we can have peace. And this is all because hope is in this king. Now, there are plenty other places we look to uh, outside of Jesus. Who, who, who else would fulfill the, um, the role of being an ancient and future king other than the Jesus that uh, Micah is teaching us about here? And there are plenty of other places that we look to outside of Jesus. Uh, we have hope in our bank account. We have hope in our homes. We have hope in comfort. We have hope in our partners and our friends, our family, our career, all good things that we can have. But all these are far too small to contain all of our hopes. Our hopes, and, and uh, not to mention all the other things, our fears, our insecurities, and everything else, even just our hopes by themselves, are far too big to be held by these small kind of little containers. And these things, like a bank account or your friends, those things are far too small to protect us from real enemies when they come in. I mean, they can mean well, but really, those things do not have the power to protect us. And that's why we live as anxious people. I think anxiety is, the cause, is one of the big massive things that we experience in the modern time because we rely on so many other things than what uh, Micah is teaching us here. The more we rely on all these other things, the more we will be led to anxiety. The more we rely on the king, the more we will be led to security. It's a one-to-one -one correlation. That doesn't mean bad things are not gonna happen. In fact, it means when the bad things do happen, we have a new way of, of living, a new way of being human. So placing our hope in the king gives us the solid ground we need even when everything else is crumbling apart. So this is uh, hope in the king. Let's talk next about um, power from the king. So we see now, whoop, of myself, uh, power from the king. So we see that um, the invasion of the Assyrians into, into Israel gets reversed here. If... Uh, uh, if when we find, um, sorry, trying to find the verse here. The, um, uh, if we're, so we're at verse five, he will be our peace when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses. So that's going to be our peace. And then we will raise against them seven shepherds, eight commanders. So this, this kind of uh, spiritual kind of army is going to be raised. And this army is going to rule the land of Assyria. It's going to rule the land of Nimrod, which is a great name for any kind of land. Um, but it's not Israel. Uh, it's, uh, and this king is going to deliver us from these Assyrians when they invade our land. So not only is he going to protect us, but he's going to enlarge our borders as a people. Instead of being ruled by our enemies, we get to have power over them. God's power through us. And this power that we get from the king brings blessing and it brings destruction. Now, I'm going to say this a few times. Ruling over people can sound completely unjust, but this is not what this means for us today. It doesn't mean ruling over individuals. It's basically like, it's not about ruling over our enemies first. It's ruling against God's enemies first. And who are God's enemies? Death and all his friends. 
anxiety, worry, depression, all those things. We get to rule over those things. Often, those are the things that rule over us in our lives. But through what Jesus has done, we get to rule over those things. We'll talk about that again in a minute. But this kind of power that we get from the king brings blessing and destruction that we see here. In verse seven, um, there's the good side. There's blessing, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, um, which do not wait for anyone or depend on man. If you live in an agrarian society, in a society that's focused on growing crops and things like that, and if you don't yet have access to the technology of irrigation systems, rain that falls is a blessing. It's not a metaphor for life. It, it is life. Because if it doesn't rain, you don't eat and you die. So the rain that falls is, a, is a, the dew from the Lord, the showers on the grass. That's life. And this life doesn't come from man. We can't control the rain. It would be good if we could because then we could basically basically make it never rain in Manchester. But we don't have that kind of power. If we did, surely we would abuse that power. We would give it to people we like, withhold it from people that we don't. But it doesn't depend on man. And the fact that it doesn't depend on man also means that we're talking about a blessing beyond what humans can offer, a, a, a bigger blessing than what we as humans can give. As humans, we can give a lot. We can give love, we can give relationships, we can give support, but we all have our limit because we're all human. Not so with this blessing here, because this blessing doesn't depend on man. It's God working. So there's not just blessing, though. We also read that there is destruction in verses 8 and 9. Uh, describes this remnant. A remnant just means like the survivors that God is, is uh, holding for himself. Describes them as like a lion among the beasts among the forest. A young lion among, among flocks. It mauls and mangles as, it's go, as it goes, and no one can rescue. And it says, your hand will be lifted up in triumph over your enemies, and your foes will be destroyed. So this remnant is not just kind of a, a really nice and just, just super nice to everybody all the time kind of thing. Being nice is great, but hopefully we're more than that. It's also uh, a lion. It mauls and it mangles. I mean, the, the most strongest and ferocious animal that you could, I could probably think of is a lion. Now, this also might sound like an abuse of power, but it de again, it comes down to how we define enemies. People have been abusing Christianity over centuries by making uh, their enemies saying that they're God's enemies. And that's just not what we're allowed to do. Because what we find in verse 9 is this remnant, these survivors, says, your hand, talking to God, your hand, God, will be lifted up in triumph over your enemies, God, and all your foes, God, will be destroyed. So it's not about the people that we don't like or the things that we don't like. It's about God destroying the things that are against him. So God's enemies are whatever holds us back from being humans fully alive. Our backward hearts that put all our hopes in the wrong places, our worry, our anxiety, fear, depression, that's what we get from the enemies, and it eats us alive. And it's also the brokenness that we bring into the world, because we're not perfect, and we don't want to see any more of this world get broken through our own actions. What we hear here is that God will always win, he will always be better, and everything broken in this world that he created will be destroyed. And really what we find, if we have blessing... And if we have destruction, those things rightly applied mean justice, setting everything that is wrong right, blessing, God's, uh, blessing the things that give life, just destroying the things that uh, steal life from us. That's what justice is. 
That's what justice is all about. Blessing and destruction together rightly applied as justice, which is why we can't rely on ourselves to figure these things out. We need to rely on God to sort these things out. And God's people here are called to participate with God to make everything how it ought to be. Because we know this world isn't how it ought to be. But we're called to participate in reflecting it. We're invited by Jesus to live lives of justice. And that means justice is calling out life and pushing back the darkness. Those who have this power of blessing and destruction, they're called the remnant of Jacob. So these are the people who survived. These are the survivors. Not because they were like our friend Jan and you know, were amazing people, but because God chose to work through them. The worst has come. The worst is going to come, but these are the survivors. This is like a small group of bedraggled refugees from a war-torn country. There's nothing inherently powerful with these people. These are immigrant populations. And yet, here they are in the middle of many other people groups with the power. Not because of them, and they're not using it for their own means, but through what God is doing through them. Now, this is surprising because this doesn't come from human power. It comes from God. The remnant today, how, this, how we apply this today, is the church, those who Jesus has redeemed. We are the survivors. We're bedraggled, but with the power of the Spirit working through us. Who would have thought that this small group of people in Micah chapter 5 would become the seed of the church that would eventually become a global uh, phenomenon that's co- completely taking over the world? Who would have thought that these people who have barely survived the, the Assyrians who were going to eventually come and take them over, that, that they would kind of barely make it out and scratch and, and barely make it alive, would eventually become the seed of the church? Who, nobody would have thought that that this would be uh, the beginning of an organization that calls people from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of ethnicities, and to life, and pushes back the darkness in all kinds of places. 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16, talking about the church in this way, says, for we, we, all of us, are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we bring an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. These are the people God chooses to work through. So if you feel like you're barely keeping your head above water, this chapter is for you. We don't feel super strong, uh, you know, often. We feel like we're kind of barely surviving, which is why we need to hear more about who we are. Because it'd be very easy for us to to first take on the identity of people who have been taken over. But this is it in chapter five. This is it. This is you. This is me. If you follow Jesus, you've been invested with a power beyond yourself. In you, there's life. And in you, the darkness has pushed back. This power is much more than we can contain for ourselves. It's meant to spill over to other people's lives. We're not meant to keep it ourselves. Depending on the Lord, calling out life, pushing back the darkness. Now, we don't get to choose for ourselves where we live this out. We rely on the Lord to lead us. And so through that, we're going to be led to people from all kinds of different backgrounds, who come from different countries, who speak different languages, who have different sexual gender orientation than us, who have different class backgrounds. All the things that separate us as humans, Jesus brings us together under his rule. And we don't get to choose where blessing and destruction comes through because our power isn't our own, it's from God. And we have to surrender to that. We don't use our own power to live this out. We rely on the Lord to work through us. Let's move on to the last section here, preserved by the king, these last <coughs> 10 through 15 verses here. 
in the day that all of God's enemies are destroyed, God promises to preserve us in his mercy. The first way he does, uh, the first way he does this is he first protects us from ourselves. There's a list of things here that God's going to do. In verse 10, he says, in that day, and this is something where he's like looking forward to the future. In that day, I'm gonna destroy your horses from among you, demolish your chariots. I don't have a horse or a chariot. What in the world does that mean? Well, for the time then, uh, basically those are weapons of war. And if God is our king, if God is ruling over us the way that he says, and if we're surrendering to that rule, then we do not need our own weapons of war. In fact, it's best for us not to have weapons of war, as we all know from history. Weapons of war are always used for our own means and not to serve others. We easily, uh, through this, depend on our own strength, and God knows it's better for us not to. So he's going to destroy them. Also, he destroys our cities. Everything that we use to seek to protect ourselves from the outside world, that's all torn down. We don't need that anymore. Sometimes when, uh, when we put up uh, walls to protect ourselves from the world or abuse kind of from outside of ourselves, we also use those walls against others and against God. And that stops us from people knowing us. God's gonna tear down those walls. In verse 12, basically every wrong way we satisfy our spiritual cravings, every wrong way we go about trying to get to God, every wrong way we try and manipulate him by thinking if we're good people, then we're good with him. If we're good people, we can ask him to get him stuff. If I'm like 51% good, and that, mean God, that means like God is like beheld to you know, do what I want him to do. That's moralism. And that's like generally what we live by. But when we think all of that in order to get God to love God, you have to, um, you have to be good, all that's thrown away. When we think we have to do good things to get God's attention, that's all thrown away. That's not the gospel. Verse 13 says, everything that we put our hope in, we mentioned hope earlier, all that is going to be smashed God is going to destroy our idols, all, everything that we think can hold our hope but are just too small. Those empty idols of money, of power, they're no, lo- they're no more and we'll no longer chain our lives to them. And verse 14, Asherah poles uh, are basically fertility gods and these were set up around temples in order to worship God. You would go see a temple prostitute and have sex. Um, very easy way to get followers to say, oh yeah, in my religion, you have to have sex with each other. Everyone's gonna sign up for that. But even those things are wrong ways of how we use sex. Those things are going to be uprooted from among us. Our misplaced views on sex, how we view it, our wrong ways of going about it, uprooted and thrown away. So all our empty hopes, all those empty securities, these all lead to empty lives. And God's not going to stand by and let us live that way. He's going to change us. Now, lastly, he's also going to preserve us from others. But notice, before I even get to that, the majority of God's protection comes from within. It doesn't come from without. Often if we think of enemies, we think of people out there or things out there that are trying to get us. But God knows better than we do that really we're our own worst enemies. The thing that, the, the thing that holds us back from knowing God and from living the full life that he offers isn't often things that are outside of us. It's everything that's going on inside. But there is something outside of us that God is... Um, brings up here in verse 15. Basically, God has patience and love. But if that patience and love is abused and not taken advantage of, that looks like not surrendering to the Lord with our lives. I mean, God never forces anyone to live with him, anyone to love him. But in the worst case scenario, eventually he gives us what we want, which isn't often very good for us. 
If we want empty lives and we don't ever intend on surrendering to the Lord in them, eventually he's not going to hold us back and he'll let us live those empty lives. We don't talk about this you know, very often because it's not fashionable and we want to be nice. We don't want to offend people. Um, I mean, God is love, but he's not just a one-sided personality of shallow love. And we don't talk about, we don't just get to talk about the things that we want to talk about. Uh, if the Bible brings it up and we surrender our lives to what we believe God's word is and we have to talk about it. We don't preach what we're comfortable with in our lives or even on Sundays. We use the words that God chose to teach us about himself. And rebellion to the king leads to a horrible place, leads to punishment. And when we see some kind of punishment as fair for people who betray their own country, but what about the much higher offense when talking about the king of the universe? So if you believe the Bible is true and therefore verse 15 would fit into that, if, and you follow Jesus, and this really ought to change our lives, it changes how we view blessing and destruction. We call others to life who without which would ex will experience the opposite. So if you're like me and you might be afraid to talk about Jesus with someone, as I had the past couple nights, I mean, maybe prayer like this is helpful that I often have to pray myself. Lord, please work through me. Let my love for this person overcome my own selfish fear. Lord, may your love overcome my fear. That's what I have to pray for that often. I'm not like a super outgoing evangelist type. I don't know if you guys are. That's an amazing gift. I don't have that. But I think what we see too is God in his mercy stops us from living these empty lives and he offers something so much better, a full and satisfied life with him. But it's all kind of violent. <laughs> he's destroying stuff. He's throwing like walls to the ground. He's uprooting things. I think God's mercy comes across with these violent metaphors because we need a revolution to go on within our hearts. We need a rebellion against our own complacency. We need an insurgence against apathy. We need God to destroy the parts of our hearts that we don't want to give to him so that he can recreate it in his image. He's not here to destroy us so that we end up destroyed. He's here to start us from scratch so he can build us up in the way that we ought to be. And it's a violent mercy. The destruction comes to all the places that hold us back from following our king, everything that stops us from being human. Now, we've titled this series of talks in Micah as uh, Hope, Justice, and Mercy. And we've seen these three at work even in this chapter today. We have hope in the king. We have power from a king to be a people of justice as we work uh, blessing and destruction together. And we're preserved by the king in his mercy. So justice and mercy, we like them both, but together they kind of present a problem. When we're wronged, we want justice. When we wrong others, we want mercy. We don't always want justice. We don't always want mercy. It's very self-serving, if you think about it. And then think of presenting ourselves before God. You know, we really like his mercy, but we're afraid of his justice in some ways because if we're at least 1% honest with ourselves, we know we're not good enough for him to love us. So we long to see, though, at the same time, we want that justice to work itself out in our world. And we long to see people who are homeless not be homeless before. We long to see people who are in the broken systems of uh, probation and trying to get out of prison and trying to live a normal life again. Those systems are jacked up and broken and they're horrible and they're evil. We want to see justice see itself worked out in our world. But we can't really do it because we're so messed up. So how can we live in God's mercy and live in his justice when we know we don't live up to the standard that he's talking about here in chapter 5? God knew that we can't reach up to him. 
It, it was not surprising to him. It's not like, oh man, these people, they can't do anything. God knew that, which is why he had to come down to us. And this King Jesus, who comes from Bethlehem, will rule. His rule was started by turning this world upside down. And after he lived a perfect life, he was the only one to do so, only one to live a perfect life. And instead of keeping that blessing for himself, he gave it up for us. He was tortured and died a humiliating and painful death. He took on all that destruction. Everything in us that deserves God's punishment, everything. And in return, we get to experience all blessing, the mercy of being God's children, the mercy of God embracing us as we are, but also not keeping us that way because he is taking those bad parts away from us. So God is just and merciful. And through Jesus, we get to participate in that justice and mercy. It doesn't just end with us. It isn't just like an individualistic kind of one-off thing, me and God. It means we get, to per- we get to be a part of something bigger as this world is getting remade. We aren't destroyed, but all the broken parts in us are destroyed. We don't have to work towards anything because we've already been given it all. When we make mistakes, when we place our hope in all those different things, that we place our hope in different things all the time, for everyone who is in Christ, we don't need to grovel. We can come to him and ask forgiveness because now we're secure in his love. There's nothing you can do to make God love you less or love you more. There simply isn't. He is ecstatic about having you as his child. He is more excited than like the best parent could ever be about having you as his child. I don't think we really know that very much. I don't know if we really feel that very much. I know I can grow in that. And I need to hear that over and over and over because I don't believe that very much if left to myself. I need others to tell me about this awesome grace. I need to read it for myself. I need to pray it back to God. I need to sing about it together on Sundays. I am so prone to put my hope in other things that can never compare with how amazing God is. I need to keep coming back to him. I need to keep hearing about his love for me, keep asking him to change me. It's a a continual process. And that's one of the purposes for this table to remember the love of God, to remember the lengths that he came to save us, how he came down to save us and was destroyed by the cross, to remember why it's in our best interest to not put our hopes in the things that we want to put our hopes in, but to actually put our hopes in the king that Mike is talking about from thousands of years ago. And this bread symbolizes Jesus' body. He took on our destruction so that we wouldn't have to. And this bread symbolizes Jesus' blood. He drank the destruction so that we can drink life. And as we do this, we're also called to participate in seeing this work work its way out in the different parts of our world. So we get to continually call out life, continually get to push back the darkness. Now we're about to sing some songs, and and as we do, what we do is we come up here, we grab a piece of the bread and dip it in the wine or the juice. The act of coming up here, though, of eating and drinking, symbolizes our life in Jesus, symbolizes our surrender to the king that Mike is talking about here, and symbolizes our need to depend on him in all things, just as we depend on food and drink. And so if you don't have life in Jesus yet or depend on him yet, this table isn't for you, and we don't want you to do something that you wouldn't believe in yourself. Also, though, you don't have to be a member of Redeemer. You just have to be a fellow follower of King Jesus. And if you've never done this before, you're more than welcome to join us because this table is open to everyone from any kind of background. And regardless of who you are, Jesus asks us all to come and to live, to not only experience hope, justice, and mercy, but live lives that allow others to experience hope, justice, and mercy. Let me pray.